Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to Software Radio. Software Radio on time, on target. I'm your host this afternoon, Steve Ballastrieri. We have a very special guest with us on the line. Uh, I, he just came up with a book. His name is Mike Leonard. He was a pilot in the Air Force. He was a fact pilot in Vietnam. I think, uh, you know, once you hear his story, our listeners are going to love hearing about Mike, uh, what he did in the Air Force, some of the stories he has to relate. It was a really, a really interesting book. I encourage all of our uh, listeners to uh, 
to check that out and download it. But before we get into all that stuff, and we'll, you know, inform our listeners and readers where they can find that later on in the podcast. But before we do that, we want to welcome Mike to the podcast. Mike, welcome to Software Radio. Thanks for taking the time this afternoon. We really appreciate it. Hey, Steve, you are more than welcome. I'm just uh, pleased as punch can be, to be here and uh, looking forward to our little discussion. Yeah, um, you, know, um, you know, I think there was a, there's an old Chinese proverb. I, I think it's kind of a curse, I think, when it says, may you live in interesting times. And I think uh, you could say your life was a very, up to this point, I'm sure you're not done living yet. But I think that you've lived through some pretty interesting times. You know that that's uh, that's so true. That's, I think I used that uh, that little quote in my book somewhere. At, uh, and that was it. May you live in interesting times. And if you think about it, you know, you go through life. There's three things in life. You know that you're born, you live, and then you die. And so you can't control the first one or the last one, but you can control everything in between during the life phase. And and I'll tell you something right now you want to pack into that life phase as much interesting stuff and do as many things and meet as many great people as you possibly can. That's what life's all about. That's it. And uh, I think you did that. I mean, uh, reading the book, it was like every page was something else. And, you know, uh, early in your life, you, you talked about how you, you know, you grew up and your family and, you know, your uh, grandmother was actually traveling for a while with a circus, which was like really interesting. And then yourself, you uh, you took Mary Fran from the Bob Newhart show to your college prom, which uh, I was, you know, I'll have to say I'm dating myself there, but I was quite jealous of that. <laughs> well, 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 her name was, uh, God love her, you know, she's passed away now, but her name was yeah. Mary Fran Lukey and uh, she was a St. Louis girl, and uh, I think she was uh, one of the first teenage Miss Americas or something like that. But at the time, she was just one of the young ladies that we dated. And, uh, and yeah, and I took her to my college prom. I, I remember she <laughs> she came up came up on, on a train, uh, and uh, we picked her up. And, uh, you know, of course, it was all very much by protocol in those days when you're, you know, coat and tie and the whole nine yards. So, uh, But she was a great gal. Great gal, yeah. Yeah, and uh, I, I she was fantastic on that Bob Newhart show. I, I love, you know, I thought when I heard he was coming out with that second show, I was like, he can never beat that first show that he had. I think he did with that one, and she was a big part yep. of that. Mm-hmm. So, yep, yep. So, um, you know, uh, fill our listeners in a little bit about how you came to become an uh, Air Force officer and a little bit about your military career and, and we'll go from yeah, well, there. Okay, so let me just jump it right into it there, Steve. And I'll tell you, I, it's it's funny because, um, so I wrote the book. And, of course, some of the highlights of the book, that kind of the high points are some of the things that occurred in Vietnam. But in order to, to write a book, you have to have a starting point. You know, who, who, are, who is this guy? You know, and what, how did he get to where he is now? You know, so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I grew up in St. Louis, and, and I uh, – Went off to college there at, uh, in Kansas, a small liberal arts college called St. Benedict's College in Atchison, Kansas, great little school. And um, and then, I, you know, after I got married late, I liked my last year in college, 
and uh, had a little one on the way. And so I, I'm thinking, what am I going to do for a living here? And um, uh, I remember the Marine guy came in, a Marine uh, recruiter came through our our uh, student union, so to speak. And, and I was going to sign up and join the Marine platoon leader class. But uh, when he came back to do the final paperwork, and you know, I was looking for him. He never showed up. And But the Air Force recruiter walked in the door and I said, that that must be the guy I'm going to be signing up for. So I, I I ended up joining the Air Force because I needed a job, and I didn't feel like selling insurance in Kansas City or or coaching football and teaching high school in Chicago. So those are my options. So uh, anyway, karma so has a way of working, doesn't it? It, it is. It is. It's the the serendipity to life is just the way things work. And and so there I was, and uh, off. To San Antonio, Texas, and for what I didn't realize was the beginning of a 20-year career. And, and uh, you first started off as a crew member and later transitioned to become a pilot. And can you talk to uh, our listeners a little bit through that? You bet. You bet. So um, when I went into the Air Force, I ended up um, being brought in as what they, was known as a weapons controller. And the weapons controller was... Uh, the, the recruiter said, well, you're going to be controlling missiles out of Cape Kennedy, Florida. And I thought, geez, that would be great, you know, launching missiles and stuff. Well, that wasn't exactly what the job was. The job entailed working at radar sites, sometimes remote radar sites, throughout the, uh, you know, the northern tier. You remember the dew line? You remember the distant <laughs> early warning line up in northern Canada? Those are the places that you went. And what you did was you would you would get online, you control fighter interceptors in case any of the Russian bear bombers would come your way or anybody, uh, you know, you basically run intercepts against these, these, uh, these bombers. So that was the job. And so, but my first job ended up in a place called Fort George Meade, Maryland at the 770th radar squadron. So that was, it was a, a radar squadron and I ran intercepts there and did all my things. And, and, uh, was living, you know, living uh, as a young second lieutenant. I think I was making $117 a payday, and it was twice a month. So you can see what money wasn't great, um, but <laughs> but the job was really fun. And uh, you know, so but the thought, what the next thing that happened was, I I looked online at one of the bulletins that they put out, and it said, you know, you can uh, you can actually go and fly and do the same job controlling controlling these airplanes and interceptors you can you can get on a ec-121 that's the old lockheed constellation the airborne early warning control system you can get on this airplane and you can fly all over the place and you can control intercepts and by the way they pay an extra hundred bucks a month i thought heck i think i just died and went to heaven so (laughs) there i was you know and so now uh, i i I move out to to sacramento california was McClellan Air Force Base. And I'm at McClellan flying with the 552nd wing and we're all of a sudden we get noticed we're being deployed to Vietnam. And uh, off I go on my first tour to Vietnam in 1965, working in the back of a Connie, a Lockheed Connie, flying up in the Gulf of Tonkin, controlling fighters and uh, trying to keep any MiGs away from the fleet that's out in the Gulf of Tonkin. So that's that was the job that that entailed. And then um, somewhere along the line, you know, Steve, I, I got this um, 
one of the pilots said, you know, we make an extra 150 bucks if you're a pilot flying an airplane. I said, well, hell, I said, how hard is that? I, maybe I can try that. So I volunteered to become a pilot, an Air Force pilot, and I became an Air Force pilot after, uh, I think it was 1968, I graduated with my group. And um, what the heck did they do to me? They put me back in the cockpit of EC-121 Lockheed Constellation. This time they sent me to Otis Air Force Base up in Massachusetts. So that's yeah. kind of how that first part started. Yeah, I know Otis quite well. Um, you know, growing up in Massachusetts, we had family down in Falmouth. So I know you know Falmouth very well being stationed. I lived, I lived, Steve, I lived in Falmouth. That's where I lived. Yeah. And uh, yeah, when I was reading the book, I, I got a chuckle out of that because I know how New England winters are. They just had a huge nor'easter up there uh, just yesterday. and. Uh, I can't imagine flying in stuff like that. And you, you talked about a couple of instances where some of the uh, storms up there kind of made things a little dicey. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you <laughs> you flew out of Otis, especially during the winter. You, you just had to expect, you know, icing and you had to expect uh, really, really bad weather. And we got it on a regular basis up there. Yeah. Oh, man, I, I can't imagine that. And, uh, you know, uh, for somebody who just flew in the back and jumped out of aircraft, uh, my hat's always off, off to those uh, to those people who, who know how to fly through that stuff, because uh, I'm glad it wasn't me doing that. We probably would have been bent around a tree somewhere. So, <laughs> well, it was some interesting times. I think one of the times I relate in the book, and it, it might be interesting, is we were deployed up to uh, Iceland, to Reykjavik, Iceland, to the Navy base. And what had happened was, I think some of the uh, some of the radar sites uh, along the uh, you know the, the the sea lanes that came out of Russia uh, between Greenland and Iceland had been had blown down, and uh, one of the radar sites had blown down. So they needed to put these lucky constellation airborne early warning planes into the slots over the waters kind of to bridge the gap in, in the radar uh so we went up there and we're flying and one <laughs> we get an, an active air defense mission and uh, we get launched and i think i relate in the book somewhere that we actually roll out on the runway and since it was an active air defense mission we had to go we we're going so <laughs> The, un, uh, the unfortunate part was that the runway had about, you know, three or four inches of snow on it. And, but, you know, normally you wouldn't even fly in that condition. But we got on that runway and took off to go down the runway. And we weren't getting the power we needed. And uh, and so the pilot that was in the left seat at the time, uh, Jim Marner, I think his name was, Jim reverses the engines, uh, you know, and we're coming to a sliding stop toward the end of the runway because we had to abort the takeoff and i'm telling you what it was uh it was a ride and we kept slowing down and slowing down but we we're end of the runway coming up and we had to quick I, what he did was he essentially just kind of stepped on one brake and pulled one couple of the engines out of reverse and we just kind of spun around at the very end of the runway <laughs> <laughs> i remember reading that in the book and i was like yeah i can't imagine being in the back of that aircraft at the time and going through that because that would have been one of those uh, instant bathe and sweat moments. 
You know, it's funny, Steve, because what what happens is you get you, you know you look you look at a pilot like like the, the guy in the left seat, Jim was, and he had a lot of experience, thousands of hours of flying. And here I was kind of a new pilot at the time, but those are the guys that taught you how to fly airplanes. And you know, I I give them so much credit because they were, you know, they're just they had had the experience, they knew what they were doing. This guy. It was like second nature to him. So that's what you had to develop as a pilot. You had to have a second nature to you. That's cool. And uh, so talk us through, then you transitioned in, into the smallest aircraft in the Air Force. Talk us through that a little bit. There. Well, you know, it's it's funny. And the, the, one of the common themes you're going to hear, <laughs> hear me say is, I was always trying to follow the money because if you've got a growing uh, a family, a growing family, you're, you're always looking to make sure that you're taking care of them, getting a little bit extra. So what happens is, so I'm, uh, I, I noticed when the guy said to me, you know, um, you know, if you go into combat, if you go to Vietnam and go to combat, you know, they, I think they pay an extra 110 bucks a month for combat pay. And so, and at the time I was at, at uh, Otis Air Force Base, I was kind of at a position where I had been there for a couple of years, I think it was. And, and I thought, you know, um, they got a war going on. If I can help in any way, I'd sure like to try it. Oh, by the way, they pay an extra 110 bucks a month in combat pay. Well, you know, I could, I could do that for, you know, a year. So um, here comes this bulletin that says, hey, uh, we're looking for people to become forward air controllers. And I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. Um, <laughs> little did I know, but uh, so I volunteered to become an 01 <clears throat> bird dog forward air controller or FAC as they call it. And um, sure enough, they accepted me, which, you know, I guess it shouldn't have surprised me because they needed, they needed all the help they could get over there at the time. Um, off I went to Herbert Field down in Florida went through the uh, air ground operations school and the flight training in the 01 bird dog. And um, which by the way, as I understand it, was the smallest airplane in the air force inventory at the time. Uh, but anyway, I did went through the, the crew qualification did all the flying, got qualified, checked out, dropped the family in Oklahoma and then took off uh, out of, I think it was uh, Travis air force base and, uh, you know, a few weeks later, and I flew all the way to um, uh, into uh, the Philippines, where I had to go through the uh, the Jungle Survival School. And uh, of course, that you know, after I think it was a, a week long or a ten day long course, you know, then off we go to Vietnam. So that's that's how I got there in an one bird dog. Right, and you know the the tactical air controller or fat, uh, forward air controller. Nowadays, those guys are on the ground, um, yeah, m much more so than the guys in the air. And you know, um, can you talk some of our listeners through how how the changes came about with that? Because you guys were on the basic. I mean, you're flying in a <laughs> what we would call today a Piper Cub. I mean, you know, you you see those they they're, they're kind of like small pleasure craft, and you've got some rockets on that, and you. You're getting shot at with air defense artillery and heavy machine gun fire. I mean, that that's probably why a lot of those changes came about. Yeah, yeah. So, so here's the as I mean, of course, now I've been out since 
I retired in 1983. But uh, <clears throat> so if you think about it, when when I retired, so the four air controller in Vietnam, it was an airborne mission. Um, the uh, you know, and the Air Force four air controller, <clears throat> his job was to control tactical air, uh, putting it on the target in support of the ground troops who were in contact. Um, Another job he had was artillery adjustment, uh, visual reconnaissance, and in my case, I, I uh, handed, uh, managed the, uh, the Agent Orange defoliation missions for the province that I was in. So that was another story I think I relate in the book. <laughs> um, but you had, you had all these various missions, and um, you know, and and these missions all kind of came down to one thing, and that is that you control TAC air. Uh, onto targets to keep the bad guys away from the good guys. And and that's what that's what you did. Now we fast forward to today's four air controller and these are they're no longer officers flying in their airplanes. They're enlisted men and uh, you know NCOs who have gone through rigorous training and because you're a special forces guy, you know this, you've met them, you know them. The air the combat controllers are are I mean, these are young Air Force uh, kids that uh, that are, you know, qualified in special forces operations and, and the physical and the mental uh, sorts of stresses that they go through. And these guys are embedded with, you know, the uh, troops on the ground. And so it's a whole different world. As a matter of fact, I think one of the air uh, controllers, I'm trying to remember his name, I think he just was awarded the Medal of Honor here a year or two ago, uh, was it, was it Chapman? I think? Yeah, I yeah. remember his name. Yeah, and um, he. I mean, that's what a that's what a four air controller or combat controller does today. And I'll tell you what, my hat is off to him because at least I was above the fray. <laughs> and I, you know, so it's it's a funny thing. Brandon and I used to have this discussion. Well, you know, he'd say, "Well, you did that, and you was flying around getting shot." I'm going, Are "You kidding? You were on the ground." You know, you're hugging a tree, you're in a ditch somewhere, and they're, you know, I, I my hat's off to you. And he'd say, no, my hat's off to you. So it's, you know, it's it's just an amazing thing, an amazing thing. Yeah, in fact, um, you know, um, working with those guys, the, I, I've worked with them in the past, and they're just great people. They have a tremendous amount of training. And, you know, not only have they been through a lot of the same stuff that we did it as uh you know green berets but uh i mean th tactically they hold their own you know as well as anybody and they have all this other you know these guys are cool as cucumbers when they, they're dealing with aircraft flying all over the place and you know i i remember reading the story of the guy you mentioned chapman and he had like uh he had a whole flu uh slew of aircraft in his uh in his in his pattern there, trying to coordinate all of that. Those guys there, they're just absolutely amazing. But getting back to yourself, uh, that one story about the Agent Orange and how it got all inside your aircraft, uh, I think our listeners would uh, appreciate uh, a little bit of that story. Yeah, well, so what happened there, Steve, is so uh, one of the jobs that I had was <clears throat> I was I coordinated the Asian orange defoliation for the province that I was in. Matter of fact, I had a couple of provinces under my 
uh, it's responsible for it. So what happens whenever they would have enemy out there and it would be in the triple canopy jungle, uh, you know, the great minds in those days said, well, let's just go and defoliate uh, this section of the jungle. Or maybe it was a forest or something or a jungle. <clears throat> and then I would coordinate and uh, with the C-123s, the ranch hand missions uh, of airplanes, and they would come in and the uh, way we would do it is they would they would have a time on target where they hit the initial position and they would start spraying and it'd be usually a three ship of uh, of these C-123s. They'd come in low and they're maybe a few hundred feet off the ground and off the jungle and they start spraying. My job was I got two like a set of fighters and I'd have them overhead and I'd have them holding. And I would be behind the C-123s and maybe a few hundred feet above them. And as they would start to defoliate and spray, uh, what would happen was one of the guys on the C-123, being that he was down at a couple hundred feet spraying this stuff, if he, they took ground fire or got hit or heard any sort of ground fire, he would throw a smoke grenade out the back door. And uh, when the smoke grenade hit, he would tell me that they were taking ground fire and I would roll in, and I would be looking for that smoke grenade, for the smoke that was emanating from the jungle. Once I saw it, then I would bring the tactical air, the F-100s or the F-4s or whatever it might have been, down, and I would uh, direct uh, them onto that uh, the target where the ground fire was coming from. And that said, one of the problems that you faced was now, as a young forward air controller, I would end up diving through this spray through this defoliation, this Agent Orange. And, uh, you know, you'd fly the mission and you'd come back and you'd land and now it was all over with and you'd land and the crew chief would come out and, you know, your windscreen would be, it's like an oil. It's all I can say, it's like a clear oil. It was just all over the windscreen, all over the airplane, all over you, your visor, you know. I mean, it was like you just took a bath in the stuff. That's that's how bad it could get. Yeah, and... Uh... Yeah. When you think about all the guys who had health problems, you haven't had anything prop up from this. Um, well, you know, no, the answer, the answer is, um, the answer is uh, I've got some skin issues, you know. You uh, yeah. So, yeah, so, you know, like eczema type stuff, but that's controllable with, with uh, various, you know, uh, salves and ointments or whatever. But the biggest thing that I think I, I came away with was, uh, so like I just got a cold here the other day, and uh, a week ago. So my colds always tend to go to asthma. And I never had asthma or any lung problems until I came back from Vietnam. So that's, that's kind of where, that's about the only things. Now, the good news, Steve, I had had all my kids. So, so yeah. I wasn't, it was, so that was always a big danger when you went through or were involved in the Agent Orange stuff is, you know, it could, it could be passed on to your kids. So fortunately, that was all done with me. And so, uh, yeah, the, the stuff I have is, uh, I mean, is I consider it kind of minor. It's manageable. Okay. Yeah. Because uh, I know that uh, we gave some of that stuff to our South American allies uh, around one of their jungle bases. And unbeknownst to us, they had sprayed it around to, you know, cut down some of the... Uh, the foliage around the base to give them a, you know, a better security perimeter. And we took our, the troops we were training through that 
And I was the first guy into the jungle around there. And all of a sudden, from the waist down, I was covered with this oil stuff. Yep. So I walked everyone yep. out of there. And before, and it was just a case of maybe 20 minutes before I could go back and peel off all the clothes because mm -hmm. I knew right away exactly what I had gone through. Uh, yep. All the hair on my legs and my feet just came right off. And my Jeez. my skin turned purple. Uh, it was Jeez. like a huge sunburn, and uh, I just burned those clothes and boots. So, and I was lucky that day because uh, probably TMI is probably a little too much information there. But I never wore underwear down in the, mm -hmm. in the tropics, and I happened to be wearing it that day, and glad I did. So, uh, yep, we'll just yep. leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> well those are the, the yeah those are the things that you do i mean it's it's uh we didn't know any better right mm -hmm. oh nobody told us no. they had sprayed there either i mean we obviously yeah. wouldn't have walked in there but it happened so anyway um yeah. getting back to the uh forward air controller what can you talk our listeners uh through what a, maybe a typical mission profile would be like yeah, well, um, so you, you had uh, you had degrees of of um, problems of issues. Let's say, and the the worst thing you you could be out doing visual reconnaissance, and you could find maybe some bunkers or some trenches that, uh, and so you could bring in tactical air. These would be like F fours, F one hundreds, A ones, you name it, or even A fours from the Navy. Uh, and you bring them in, and they would drop their bombs, or they're, you know, on these particular targets. So if if you've got um, enemy positions, that's one level of uh, of, uh, of, of problematic. That's one level of problems. The, the top level problem that you ran into is when you had friendly troops in contact. When you had troops in contact, that's when that's when the, you started getting into the deep kimchi. You know, this is where this is where uh, you've got friendly guys on the ground and they're fighting it out and slugging it out, uh, and you've got to come in and you've got to get the tactical air, the bombers, to strafe or to drop napalm or to bomb uh, near the friendly troops, and so. You know what I always do did, and I think most of the facts did is, in order to try to avoid, uh, you know, getting, you know, getting any friendly troops hit by, by our friendly air. What you do is you hold my position. I hold directly over the top of the friendly troops. Uh, that way, the fighters would have to come almost through me to get, you know, to drop a bomb erratically. But you also try to make sure that the that the fighters on their what they call run-in heading, uh, it was parallel to the line of troops that you had so the friendly troops are lined up in a certain way and you want to make sure that the bombers didn't kind of bomb perpendicular because that's how you can get a short run or something so that was mm -hmm. always a big big concern for us so long story short uh if i had troops in contact uh, or a convoy be a convoy being ambushed my job would be to get out there and get tactical air and support them. Now, if I couldn't get tactical air, then I was able to, uh, like in the case of in the in the book that I related, uh, I get out to the special forces camp where the camp was being probed by enemy 
uh, all night long. And I got out there in the morning and started adjusting artillery from some friendly, you know, some friendly uh, artillery batteries uh, into the region around the airfield, around the Special Forces camp and into the jungle. So uh, I, I, that's the other thing you did to try to keep the bad guys away from the good guys. Right. And, uh, you know, one of these missions around a Special Forces camp, you were um, awarded the the Flying Cross. And um, I believe that was Thanksgiving uh, 1969. Can you uh, fill our listeners in a little bit about that one? Yeah, that was kind of the day of all days, wasn't it? Uh, and when I first started writing this this book, by the way, as I mentioned, the catalyst for the book was was Brandon Webb and my wife, and um, and uh, and I'll get to it in a minute here. It was how I really got cranked into this book, but that was Thanksgiving Day, 1969. And excuse me, uh, I don't mean to cough in your ear there, but I I was called out to the camp. And uh, as I headed out to, to the camp, um, Special Forces camp was called Duk Lop, and it's about maybe maybe five clicks kilometers or so from the Cambodian border there in Vietnam. And as I got out there, um, one of the problems one of the problems I had was the weather was really low, so I was having difficulty getting into the area where the camp was, which. Uh, so I started trying to navigate visually because we didn't have any instruments. So you, you're doing it by looking at uh, a topographic map and trying to navigate, looking at a jungle, you know, looking at a road, trying to figure out where you were uh, over the ground. And and you try to na- I try to navigate myself and get into this region or this area where the special forces camp was. But the problem was the weather kept getting lower and lower and lower. To the, point where it was probably just a couple hundred feet off the off the jungle uh, the, the overcast was but I managed to I managed to find a, a kind of a, a depression it was a creek bed or a small river or something that was moving in the general direction I wanted to go so I kind of got down was able to get down a little bit below the clouds maybe 50 feet below the this overcast and I was I decided I was going to drive you know, time and distance. I was going to drive for about a minute, two minutes, see if I could come out near this valley or anywhere near there or get in the weather conditions. So as I got down there, all of a sudden, uh, I was getting ready to turn around. I was because I was thinking to myself, "This, I'm not going to make it." Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm 
I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com news. That's LifeLock.com news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. So just about that time, I'll be darned if I didn't pop across a little road and the, the terrain below me kind of dropped a bit. And I was in the valley. I was not more than a half a mile from this uh, special forces camp at Duklam. So now here I am. And just about that time, I popped in there. I guess the NVA probably wasn't more than a minute or so. And they realized that there was an airplane <laughs> flying around the camp and they decided let's well, let's take this guy out so i started getting taking ground fire from uh, two of these uh, um you know with it's 12.7 millimeter it's a 51 caliber uh, anti-aircraft gun that the the, uh, the russians built and the chinese and everybody uses in those days anyway the, the these two 12.7s opened up on me one from near the airfield and then one behind me uh, near the road that I just crossed, and you couple those two anti-aircraft weapons, which they were firing green tracers, so you could watch them as they came up at you, and then you couple that with the fact that you've got a bunch of guys down there, I don't know what it was, a platoon or, you know, a few squads or whatever it was in, around the area, and they're all shooting at you with AK-47s, so it's, uh, and you could hear it. You could hear the AKs, but you could see the anti-aircraft guns, so you, you you knew what you were into, and all you could do was start cross-controlling the airplane, jinking, moving the airplane around. And by the way, jinking is just means just constantly turning the airplane uh, to keep from getting hit. So I did that for a while, and while I was doing that, I was adjusting artillery 
uh, onto the uh, onto the sites around the uh, near the camp, around the airfield, and things like that. And then uh, right about that time, the talk over there at the uh, at the camp calls me and says, "Hey, we've got a couple of helicopters, uh, gunships coming in, and they would, uh, you know, they're going to be able to help you out here, and they're going to." You know, suppress some of that anti-aircraft fire and some of the small arms. So they came flying in, and I gave them a quick briefing about the the problems that I was having with the anti-aircraft and where the guns were located. And I told them, I said, don't fly in that area, fly over in this area. <laughs> but the young warrant officers, you know, they were they were just gung ho and, and, and great bunch of kids. They took off and. Uh, the first number one uh, guy was, um, I forget, he was a wolf pack, I think it was called wolf pack. He ends up strafing on his initial run in with rockets and, and machine guns. And uh, I'll be darned if he doesn't get shot down right in front of me. I mean, he isn't, he isn't more than a few hundred yards in front of me as he's going in. And um, he, he makes a kind of a quick right hand turn and auto rotates and, and kind of crash lands right right below me uh so there i was with now a helicopter crew on the ground i i've got another helicopter behind me and he's he wants to get in and get these kids out of there and uh so and i'm talking to the talk and i'm talking to about 25 people you know you know we gotta we gotta get some help in here to get these folks out and uh, so for the next maybe 20 or so minutes you know we decided how are we going to get these guys out in the meantime, the guys on the ground, Steve, had jumped out of their chopper. There were four of them. Pilot, co-pilot, those uh, two gunners. Uh, you know, and uh, they jumped out, and they took up defensive positions around the chopper. And then it didn't take them long, and um, I went in and I I, I kind of dropped my AR-15 out, out the side window, and I started shooting this tree line uh, that was out to their west. And so then now they knew where the enemy bad guys were. They were in trenches under the trees. And uh, so they, the two guys, the door gunner and the pilot, retreated. And all four of them got into a ditch on the kind of on the other side of that helicopter. And um, in the meantime, I'm talking to the uh, second helicopter, and he's going to go make a, a kind of a, a, you know, a dash and pickup of this of four guys on the ground. So I said, before you do that, I said, what I'll do is I'll roll in ahead of you. Um, I'll unload some rockets. You know, I had a couple of white phosphorus rockets left. I'll unload those, and then I'll swing around and lead you back in, and I'll just try to keep their heads down by, you know, unloading out the side of the side window of my airplane with my AR-15. So I'm going in. I'm maybe a couple hundred feet above the ground, and I'm as I'm flying in, Shooting out the side of the airplane, uh, number two helicopter, the wolf pack, uh, number two guy, he comes swooping in. He he takes some hits, but he's okay. He's still flyable. And he lands. The four guys jump into his helicopter, and, man, they got the heck out of there, like, right now. <laughs> and uh, they, as they pull off and they cross the road, they, they cross right over the top of that 50, that 12.7 uh, anti aircraft gun. And, but, but the guy couldn't get a beat on him, so... Anyway, they pulled off uh, and headed back toward Bambi to it, uh, which was up maybe 20, 25 minutes up the road. I then you know, swung off and I called it a day because I'd been up there flying around for over four and a half hours on a 
plane that's only supposed to fly for four and a half hours uh, with that much gas. And uh, so we were puddling off and I'm heading back. And next thing I know, uh, because the helicopter was faster than my bird dog, <laughs> I'm climbing up and here come these, these guys, all eight of them now, on this shot up second helicopter. And they pull up alongside of me, giving me the thumbs up. <laughs> it was a... It was it was all you could ask for. You knew they were fine. They were all good. And anyway, they made it back. Um, they made it back to the, um, you know, back to Bami Tuat. And I I managed to get climb up to about a thousand feet, and was putting along for Bami Tuat, having leaned the airplane out as much as I could, trying to save as much gas as I could. And anyway, I got uh, as the, ru- the runway there at Bami Tuat disappeared under my nose. I just somebody dropped full flaps, pointed the nose over and brought you know brought it back to idle, and I just headed for the end of the runway. I land the airplane, I turn off in the first revetment, which is our revetment, so we're gonna park the airplane, and um, ran out of gas. <laughs> I know, in reading that story in the book, I can um I can tell you I was like First of all, I thought it was amazing that the helicopter was faster than your plane, and yeah. uh, that where the guys pulled up beside you and were waving to you and giving you the thumbs up, and then yeah, yeah. Uh, then your plane runs out of gas as soon as you basically hit the ground, which mm-hmm. is like that's uh, not a lot of leeway in that you know scenario. But you did what you had to do, and uh, you you hung out on target there for the entire entire time and you said you had like a four and a half hour uh loiter time with that i think that was uh, yeah as i recall the old one had a it had a you know four and a half hours five hours something like that but you know we got a lot of stuff hanging off of it you got rockets and um you know things like that so so you're right around four and a half hours is supposed to be about the amount of time you had on to loiter and so what you would do is i was always you know taught by some of those guys that i flew the 121 with and um and and guys that i flew the c47 with things like that you know they always they always took care of their engines they always leaned it out they didn't want to run too rich so i was always in the habit of kind of leaning out um you know the um, you know the engines, so that I could get as much time and distance and loiter time out of the plane as I could. And that's interesting because um, you know, it's like, and when I read that, I was like, "Wow!" You talked about because a lot of times you hear pilots say, "Well, I have a built-in reserve," but that that was long gone by that time. So. Yeah, there was nothing left. <laughs> <laughs> now. Uh, <clears throat> You know, I, I, you know, reading in the book, and I don't want to give too much away because uh, I, we want our, our readers and listeners to to purchase this. Um, did you have, I mean, you had a lot of interaction via the radio talking to these special forces camps. Did you ever actually get to meet some of these guys after the fact, after you've helped them out? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Matter of fact, I think there's a picture in the book. Um Excuse me. <laughs> Got that cough again. There's a picture in the book of, uh, I think it was sometime in, uh, 
want to say it was January of 70, when some, the Special Forces guys from the Bu Prang Special Forces camp, which was up even closer to the Cambodian border than uh, Duklop was, but um, you guys, if you've ever heard of Firebase Kate, uh, Firebase Kate was a kind of a, a famous because the Special Forces guy, his name was Albrecht, he he uh, had to escape and evade with his entire group off of this firebase and made his way back to, to the Boot Prang Special Forces camp. And um, so the guys at Boot Prang, we supported them through, I think it was October, November, September, October, November of 69. Uh, so, <laughs> excuse me, in seven, let's see, 70, January of 70, we, uh, uh, they were down at the Giannia, uh, compound where I was stationed. Anyway, um, what happened was uh, they came in, we had like a little party and they, they gave us a plaque which I've got somewhere around, I think it's at my house up in Reno. And the plaque says, you know, hey, thanks for saving our butts and, you know, and uh, I think the plaque says something, it's a quote from someone that says, you've never really lived till you've almost died. For those who uh, some about enjoy life, you know, uh, the protective will never know what it's like to to go through the sort of. Oh, here it is. Is that it? There? My wife's got it here. Yes. Yeah. So I can if I can read it. If I can read it. Yeah. Okay. It says. Yeah. 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 So it's Captain Mike Leonard, Duklop, and Boo Prang, 1969, October. Duklop. It says you've never really lived till you've almost died. For those who have fought, life has a flavor the protective will never taste. And uh, it was kind of cool, a little plaque they gave you. It's got Snoopy on it. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. that's great. One, yeah. You know, and uh, I, I love stories where some uh, crazy things and strange things, humorous things can happen, even in the most serious of circumstances. And there was one in your book that I cracked up laughing because it's like, you, you saw, you know, NVA soldiers crossing an open field. So you're getting ready to call in a tactical airstrike. And then, then you notice they were started walking on their hand. <laughs> yeah, that, that was, that was uh, exhilarating. And then all of a sudden it became embarrassing. You know, that's, uh, that's how that went. Uh, and, and there's a little anecdote. I don't know if I put it in the book, but it's, it's kind of cute. So the situation was, <clears throat> I think it was like 1970, and I was up around Boo Prang, and I was uh, just doing some visual reconnaissance work flying around the jungle. And um, I looked, I looked down at uh, this kind of the savanna grass area, and I see these, I see these NVA troops, and they're running across this field, and I'm thinking, what the hell, you know? I dip, I, I reached out to, over my VHF radio, called the. My, back to my command post, I said, hey, give me some tack air. I said, I got troops in the open. <laughs> and so I decided to dive in on, you know, just take a look at it. I went down, and as I was getting closer to them, I realized that these guys were kind of running on all four as opposed to running on just two legs. And as I got closer, I realized it was a herd of baboon. I'm not sure if that's <laughs> the right scripture. <laughs> there were a bunch of baboons. And uh, so I thought, oh, so I pulled back off and I said, forget about it. You know, we're not going to be blowing up a bunch of poor animals. So uh, <laughs> so uh, uh, they canceled the flight. And so what happened was 
and we're going to fast forward to like 1990, I think it was 1995 or 96, and I was back in Vietnam, and I had an agent, and his sister was riding with my wife and I, and we were leaving Saigon, and we are going up through um, Baolak, which is where I was originally stationed, and then on up to Dalat, and we are going to spend the weekend up at Dalat, uh, in the Central Highlands, it's, it's a beautiful location. And as we went through Baolak, I was relating the story to the young Vietnamese woman who was our agent's sister. And I said, you know, explaining the story about the baboon. She says, oh, we don't, we don't have any baboon in Vietnam. And I went, um, I said, well, yes, you do. I mean, I saw him. I was, I mean, I almost shot him up <laughs> oh no i don't i don't think we have any baboon in vietnam and steve it was almost like somebody said hey cue the baboon because across in front of the car as we all the driver the the agents the gal lindy we all see this big baboon run right across in front of the car <laughs> it was it was like see i told you i knew there was baboon here he must have been, you know, monitoring the conversation, and he was like, I, "Okay, time to show this woman we do live here." <laughs> Somebody <laughs> cue the baboon. So, boom, all yeah. it goes. Um, in uh, you flew now, you flew bird dogs in Vietnam, yeah, and then you transitioned to the largest aircraft in the Air Force inventory, the C five. I can't imagine what that was like after flying bird dogs, you know, basically by yeah. the, yeah, I mean, you talked about, I mean, there wasn't a lot of avionics on there. There was no aiming points for your rockets. You talked about there was just basically a little welded uh, pole on the cowling. And then you had a grease pencil where you kind of did your markings. Yep. Transitioning that to a C5 had to have been like, Flying the space shuttle, I guess. <laughs> yeah, so that's what um, that was a real interesting. I, I thought I always thought that some some you know sadist at the Air Force Personnel Center had decided I'm going to you know we're just going to do this to this poor guy. You know we're going to take him out of the smallest airplane in the inventory and put him in the at the time the largest airplane in the world. Let's see if he can transition. You don't laugh, <laughs> but what what happened is. Um, I got assigned to Charleston Air Force Base in South Carolina, and I was I had to go through the what they call the, the training center at uh, at um, in Oklahoma at Alphas, Oklahoma, and uh, they put me in a class with all uh, initial cadre people, meaning these were the first pilots to actually be flying this airplane, and I was uh, I was uh, in this class of guys that were all you know high time multi engine pilots. And here I am, I'm coming out of Vietnam, and I've, my experience is in multi-engine recip in the old Lockheed Constellation days and C-47s, and now I'm flying at a bird dog, of course, a small airplane. And now I'm going to be going to a multi-engine jet, not just multi-engine jet, but the biggest multi-engine jet. So, so there I was, uh, and it was, a, it was a real interesting time. Uh, to be quite frank with you, the guy that I as an instructor pilot at uh, C5 school in Alphys, his name was Johnson. Uh, he he was as he he was just so 
calm, cool, and collected. He simply said to me, you know, this is no different than flying the other airplane, the old one bird dog. He says, the only difference is your sight picture is going to change, meaning your landing picture, meaning when you in the bird dog, you might be looking out to your left and right front as you land. He says, when you land a big airplane like this, you're 30, 30 35 feet in the air uh, when you touch down. He says, and so when you go into the flare and you go to land, keep your vision at the other end of the runway because that's the only way you're going to be able to judge the closure rate of the airplane onto the runway. Once he, once it, I kind of got that through my, my thick skull, it became just another airplane. Mm-hmm. Yeah, having lived down in Charleston after my Army days were over, uh, as, I, as I told you offline, um, I lived right near the end of the runway down there and watching those big ones come in. Our condo at the time was right there and it, it's amazing how big those things are. I got to fly on one, but, uh, you know, watching them from the ground, it's, it's always amazing because they don't even look like they're moving. They're so big. And as you you mentioned in the book, I think our listeners will get a kick out of uh, the uh, nickname you guys gave it. Yeah, we we uh, uh, we call it the aluminum overcast because <laughs> it looked like it was just this huge sheet piece of sheet metal. That hung over this over your bubble in the sky. It was amazing. Now, I'm you know with all the years and thousands of hours you had flying, is there one experience that probably you chalk up as your most fun? Uh, Of all the airplanes I flew, Mm -hmm. um, yeah. The as far as just basic flying, you there was no way you could beat. The flying you did in Vietnam. I mean, if you took away the war and you took away all the people trying to kill you and you trying to kill them, you took all that away. That kind of flying, that seat of the pants flying, was about as good as it gets. It's you and the airplane, and you're on your own, and you love that. When you get into crew airplanes, then you've got a bunch of other folks that are helping you and you're coordinating things constantly, and so it's a different, it's a kind of a different ball game. But as far as pure flying, you couldn't beat the bird dog. Excellent. And then after your military career was over, you had the opportunity to travel with your wife back to Vietnam, and you actually got to visit some of the places um, that you had been stationed in. What was that like? I mean, you know, and, and again, as as we talked offline uh, before the podcast began, you know, I, I had mentioned to you, I had spoken with several veterans from the Vietnam War, and they all said the same thing, that it's such a gorgeous country. If there hadn't been a war there back in the time when they were there in the, you know, 60s, early 70s, that it would have been a tremendous place to visit. What was it like to go back? Was there a lot of conflicting emotions there? You know, that's a very good question, Steve. And, and the the fact is that I was very, very lucky to be able to go back. As a lot of people didn't want to go back because of the trauma. I, I kind of, uh, when it comes to things like PTSD and the trauma, I tend to want to face it kind of head on. I don't want to bury things. And so I had an opportunity with my company, uh, excuse me, <coughs> to go back. And, um, but I decided that uh, probably err on the side of, of caution. 
I would take my wife with me. So she was the she was actually the person that kind of softened the issues and the edges of of the travels back there uh, in '95, '96, I think it was. Oh, that's great. Um, and yeah. uh, you know the way you described your wife uh, in different parts of the book of how she was supportive to the point of going to bat for you. And again, we don't want to give up too much of the book. Sounds like a very strong lady. Oh my God. You wouldn't believe it. But uh, yeah, you know, when we went back into Vietnam, it was interesting. Um, She was, uh, I think she was blown away even more than I was because she, she really got into the culture. And by the way, the country, as you said, just magnificent, beautiful, beautiful jungles and mountains. And it's just a marvelous place. The people, I swear to God, you know, if it weren't for the war, the people are wonderful. They're, they were uh, one of the interesting stories. We came back into through customs and on our first trip in. And um, um, when I got to, when we got to the customs at the Saigon airport, I think all Chi Minh city now. Anyway, we got there and uh, we were going through customs and the customs guy said something in Vietnamese to, <laughs> excuse me, to my translator. And the translator said, they want to know if you're Russian. <laughs> and my wife says, nope, we're American. <laughs> and he looked and he went, my e, and like surprised. And, and I was like, everybody in the whole place, Americans, they're back. Yay, we can't. Where have you been? <laughs> so they were very warm, very cordial. We just, uh, uh, the, the, the people themselves were just, they couldn't have been just any nicer. That's awesome. Um, you know, and, and uh, I've heard from different people who've traveled there from one reason or another that there there is no animosity lingering there, even amongst the Vietnamese veterans who who fought against our, our guys now they're, uh, you know, uh, it would be a good place to go and perhaps, uh, mend some fences there in the future. I, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, the, the biggest, the biggest fence that anybody in the military has to mend is the one that exists in their minds. Okay. It's because you, you, you basically, have compartmentalized the trauma of being in combat in that environment. So it's really, what, once you can kind of extend yourself beyond that, you'll find that, uh, <laughs> excuse me, former, former enemies can become uh, friendly. <laughs> excuse me for the coughing. I'm just That's okay. Of, I'm suck, sucking on a cough drop here. But uh, <laughs> the, 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 the people... Uh, you know, they're friends and they're, they can be colleague, colleagues, compatriots. It doesn't have to be the animosity that you left there with. That's a great point. So, uh, Mike, we don't want to take too much of your, well, I was going to say afternoon. It's afternoon here on the East Coast, but it's your morning there in California. Um, on the West Coast, uh, we want to thank you for being here. But uh, we want to, again, our listeners uh, and our readers, the the title of the book is an American combat bird dog pilot. And um, explain to our listeners where they can find this and how they can purchase this book and uh, 
we definitely encourage all of our, our readers to do that. Well, yeah, thanks, Stephen. And so um, I, obviously you can go on Amazon. It's on Amazon right now uh, under books, under Mike Leonard, or as you said, an American combat bird dog pilot. Um, or uh, I think you can go through softrep.com. Exactly. Uh, because softrep.com was, you know, the, the, the publishing side of that uh, softrep uh, did all the all the hard work, all the heavy lifting. They're the ones that edited it, put it uh, together. Uh, I mean, the, the, it was just brilliant. And uh, to those people, and by the way, I'm just one old veteran, but I'll tell you, there's thousands of people out there with stories just as hairy, just as good, just as bad as mine. And I would encourage those people that have, you know, if, if for no other reason, write your story down for your progeny, for your grandkids, your kids. And, oh, by the way, when you put it together, contact SoftRep and, you know, and they'll take care of you. They'll get this thing published and, you know, like they did for me. I can't uh, thank them enough. Well, that's great. And, uh, you know, you mentioned Brandon Webb earlier in the podcast, and that's uh, SoftRep's owner and publisher. So, uh it was uh, it was very neat that you were able to, you know, become friends with Brandon and uh, he was instrumental in getting this published. And and again, uh, Mike, thank you for taking the time with us today. We really appreciate it. Um, You're welcome. You're welcome, Stephen. May I just interject one last question? My sure. wife just said, my my, uh, my one of my granddaughters uh, just put out, uh, you know, Grandpa, we're so proud of you. So the message to all those people who even conceive of doing this is, you know, do it to your kids and grandkids because they will, they need to know who you are, who you are, and it's uh, it's leaving a legacy. So and thank you again for taking the time to to interview me. Oh, uh, it was our pleasure. But before we go, uh, as always, we have to read our little. Uh, piece on our ad here. Uh, if you want to get soft rep on your phone. Download our free mobile app and get easy access to our articles, podcasts, gear reviews, all perfectly formatted to your device. Please subscribe to softrep.com to get access to all our library of ebooks, such as this book here, and our exclusive Team Room forums and content available on all your Apple and Android devices. Uh, we want to thank our guest today, Mike Leonard. Uh, he has a tremendous book out there. We encourage all our, our readers and listeners to go out there and download it off of SoftRep, or you can buy a copy, and uh, you'll be definitely entertained. It's a great story, and uh, he had a great story to tell. He's lived a very, very interesting life, and we've only glossed over some of the highlights here in the hour that we had for the podcast, but we could have gone much, much deeper. So, uh, Mike, once again, thank you for taking the time with us this uh, this afternoon, and good luck with the book sales. And we hope to do this again real soon. Whenever you want, just give me a call, Steve. All right, thanks again. And for all okay. of us here at SoftRep, we'll be back with another podcast in the very near future. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. From BBC Radio 4. 
Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.